I'm David Flint and this is Take Back Your Country. It's sometimes said that Australia did very well in relation to the Wuhan virus, COVID-19. Not so. Fortunately, a group of members of parliament and senators have decided to come together and inquire into the way in which Australia responded to the virus. That's principally because the government has refused to appoint a royal commission to inquire into this. We need a royal commission by an eminent judge. The reason being, we need to set up a national pandemic plan, something to deal with the next pandemic which comes to this country, whether a variant or whether a completely new virus. We need that sort of planning so that we don't make the same mistakes we made during this pandemic. There's a myth in relation to the pandemic, and that's that we did well. You just need to look at other countries to see whether we did well. We're usually compared with countries which have land borders and can't control the situation in the country as we can. We have an extraordinary geographical advantage. We are a whole continent, a nation on a continent, and we are a remote island nation, and we can control who comes in into this country to a much greater degree than other countries can. And being remote is also an advantage. The way to examine how a country has handled the virus is compare, by comparing something which is somewhat macabre, and that is comparing the death rate per million. Not the total death rate, but the death rate per million that allows you to compare different countries. And one of the countries which records a very good death rate to the extent that the death rate can be good, is Taiwan. Taiwan, which didn't go to the lengths we did in trying to control the virus, which allowed a lot of freedom in the country during the virus, which had some rocky periods too, but overall the death rate was 35 per million. New Zealand's was 30. Ours was a shocking 218. 218 per million, compared with Taiwan at 35. The total number of deaths in Australia was over 5,500 to date. It should have been well under 1,000 if we were somewhat similar to Taiwan. So over 4,000 people died from the way in which we handled the virus. And many of them died a very lonely death because of the ridiculous and cruel policies of some of our governments in not allowing the dying to be with those closest to them. That was exceptionally cruel and very unfair. When you try and make an assessment of how we responded, I think it's true to say governments, all of them, united in doing one thing, and they did it reasonably well, and that was controlling 
the international borders. It wasn't perfect. Think of the Ruby Princess and of the chauffeur of the international airline crews in Sydney, both of which allowed for the introduction of considerable strains of the virus. But overall, that part was reasonably professional. But just about every other decision, I believe, was wrong. What we in fact introduced into this country, and Michael Rechtenwald, who was was an American academic, speaking in a lecture at Hillsdale College, and a very prestigious college in the United States, speaking there on the response to the virus internationally, named some countries, and he particularly named Australia, as countries which chose to transform their democracy into a system, an authoritarian system, modelled on communist China. We effectively got governance with Chinese characteristics. And we particularly went for the draconian communist solution, which the Taiwanese didn't use, of the lockdown. The lockdown which proved to be of no benefit at all, but had a terrible result on people. And you can see how bad the lockdown was if you look at the state which had the longest lockdowns, as Victoria, that state had a disproportionate number of deaths, well over two and a half thousand deaths for the state, which was disproportionate to the amount it should have had. We also had governance by obsessions. The politicians, the national cabinet were obsessed with modeling, modeling which proved to be wrong and exaggerated. Models are always, that sort of modeling is always wrong. So said Professor Box, the Anglo-American expert statistician, who was a master of all this sort of thing. And the other thing, the other obsession of the government were vaccines. Vaccines produced overseas. And in the book by Robert Kennedy, the real Dr. Fauci, he names these vaccines and he has the support, the imprimatur of a range, a number of powerful international experts in the field, including two Nobel laureates. He has their names, they're published in the book, and he concludes that the vaccines which were used were novel, they were shoddily tested, and they were improperly licensed. There was a particular aspect of the licensing which impacted heavily on the treatment of this virus, because to be licensed without the long, thorough investigations that you normally need for a new vaccine, to rush them through, you had to have an emergency use authorization. EUA, Emergency Use Authorization in America. And everybody else copied whatever America did, particularly the Australian authorities. They put through their own assessments, but they followed, essentially followed America. Emergency 
use authorizations. But to get that under American law, the authorities had to be satisfied that there was no approved drug which would give treatment in relation to the virus, that early treatment by an approved drug was not possible. They just weren't there. This was an incentive for big pharmacy and their supporters in the mainstream media and the social media. It was an incentive for them to say, to rule, that no early treatment was possible, that the drugs being used, such as ivermectin and so on, were being wrongly used. And that was the line they took, because if they didn't take that line, they couldn't get emergency use authorization, and they couldn't make the small, well, not small, they couldn't make the fortunes that Big Pharma did out of the vaccines, particularly the mandated vaccines, vaccines forced onto people against their wills. We don't know the immediate consequences of using the vaccines. We certainly have no idea of the long-term consequences, which brings me to a, a shocking aspect of this obsession with vaccines, rather than looking at early treatment, preserving vaccines, offering vaccines to the most vulnerable. This was the wide encouragement, almost mandating, but certainly encouragement, of the vaccination of children. We know, we know that the most vulnerable for this malady are the elderly and those who have other illnesses. Of course, the most vulnerable are the elderly with other, uh, other sicknesses, particularly those in nursing homes and so on. They they're the ones that have to be looked after. And if you were going to offer vaccines, they would be the first to be offered them. They're, of course, making their own decisions whether to have them. But the shocking thing was the extension of the vaccines to the children. We know the children, children, healthy children, not those who have other serious illnesses, healthy children are the least vulnerable. And this is demonstrated by the number of deaths of children in Australia. Of those under 10 at the time of speaking, the total number in Australia was five. Five. And of those under 20, including those under, under 10, the total number was seven. You can see that children are the least vulnerable to this. So why, why have a vaccination program for children, not with a vaccine which has been thoroughly tested over the years, particularly for the long-term consequences, why have vaccines for children when, as Robert Kennedy says, with the support of a large number of experts, that these are novel, shoddily tested, improperly licensed technology? The result is, the result in Australia is that there has been a deleterious impact from the way in which governments have responded to the virus. 
And this has been shown in relation to the the uh, the finance of everybody, the work. Many people lost their jobs. Fortunately, this was covered by the Commonwealth. Businesses were destroyed, particularly small businesses. Education was interrupted. Mental health was increased. Elective surgery was delayed, and people suffered from that. Testing, testing for various illnesses was also delayed or not, not even undertaken. And there was a massive national debt developed, which will be on the shoulders of the next generation. We're heading towards a trillion dollars of national debt, which is extraordinary. None of this was necessary. Just look at the example of Taiwan. And remember that Taiwan was able to produce only 35 deaths per million. We produced 218 deaths per million. And we did all those things which Taiwan didn't do. And we have all those terrible consequences. But it, they also whittled away the checks and balances. We had ministers and premiers making decisions on a whim in New South Wales, for example. It was decided to close down the construction industry for two weeks at a cost of 1.4 billion. And the chief medical officer said she hadn't advised that. The checks and balances which we knew, even in colonial times, have been whittled away and they certainly didn't apply. All of this was done by regulation. The old practice in relation to regulation was to prepare a detailed document explaining why the regulation was necessary and that it was lawfully made within some legislation, some act of parliament. And that would go to the executive council where the governor or governor general would see that the I's were dotted and the T's crossed. And then when the regulations were made and announced, parliament, both houses of parliament, could exercise great scrutiny over the regulations. And they had an ultimate power, particularly the upper houses, the Senate and the Legislative Council, of disallowing the regulation. There was a sword of Damocles over the head of the minister, which could come down where a powerful upper house, a diligent upper house, would decide that what he was suggesting or she was suggesting was wrong. Instead, we had secret and arbitrary government. So what, what is the solution? Obviously, we need a royal commission under an eminent judge, someone like former High Court Justice Ian Callanan, who is probably the greatest Federalist since the time of the Federation, but somebody of great distinction and understanding to run that royal commission to find out the facts. We need to have a national plan in relation to the next pandemic, a national plan. And it mustn't be forgotten as the plan which Tony Abbott drew when he was Minister for Health was forgotten, put into a cabinet, filing cabinet, and never looked at it again, and never considered during this pandemic, although his work was internationally acclaimed. There are other solutions. One is litigation, but that takes a long time. 
For example, in relation to the live cattle ban, the case took 10 years and the judge found that what the minister had done in relation to the live cattle ban constituted misfeasance in public office and there'll be damages. It won't be the minister who pays the damages. It'll be the taxpayer and it did take 10 years and there's always a risk of losing and having to pay costs. There's always the possibility of appeals that can go on for long. The important thing for the people of Australia is to remember this when they vote. Consider whether you are voting for a candidate who supports this terrible response by the governments of Australia. The second thing is we must restore the checks and balances. Acton once said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The only way a political system stops that is by having checks and balances on power. You can't have ministers and a premier coming together and deciding on something on a whim and then adopting it as a regulation. It, there have to be checks and balances in functioning executive councils considering these and upper houses having the power to disallow them. And the final matter which we should really be encouraging is what Charles Kingston, who was the Prime Minister, as they were, then were called, of South Australia at the time of the discussions of Federation, he came to the convention with a draft which would have increased the power of the people in relation to governance. He was talked out of it by Alfred Deakin. He didn't even present it to the convention. Deakin said, the, the fact that we have responsible government, that is that government is responsible to the lower house, it can be removed by the lower house, means that the people can control what's going on in the governors of the country. That was before the rigorous two-party system emerged, where governments were either coalition or labor, and they're very much controlled. Both of the parties are controlled by power brokers, and the members of parliament rarely exercise much judgment. They do what they are told, and we see this best in question time. What we need to do is look at the way we federated this country. We need to leave it to the people. We need to have a convention, an elected convention, for changes, the consideration of changes to the constitution. And the greatest change we could make so that you can take back your country is by giving you, the people, greater power over the governance of Australia. And that is set out in a petition which will be linked to the appearance of this post on the website. So remember, ladies and gentlemen, the way we handled the COVID-19 crisis was certainly not all right. We handled it poorly and we've come up with bad results which have impacted on the people of Australia. The important thing now to answer that is for you, the Australian people, to take back your country. I'm David Flint.